good evening, everybody. Hello. Um, I think that we need to talk about Jesus, which might not sound like a very controversial thing to say in a church. You're like, whoa there, Hannah. I did come expecting this this evening, Jesus, that we would talk about him. Um, But uh, Jesus doesn't seem to be getting very good PR out there, does he? He's not exactly storming Instagram, right? And I am not Jesus' defense lawyer, and I'm not at all thinking that I'm going to kind of win the case this evening. But I, I do think it's worth thinking a little bit. We need to talk about Jesus. And here is why. When we reset our core values and our vision as a church uh, a couple of years ago, um, so we, we have these three things that we believe God's given us to be as a church that we are about loving Edinburgh, being family, and little participation here. Okay, that was the point at which you join in. Okay, so loving Edinburgh, being family, and perfect. You see, I'll make you Pentecostals by the end. You'll be, you'll be grand. So we did a bit of market research around those three phrases when we were exploring them um, as a church two years ago. And the reason that we did that is because we like to be hip and trendy here at Central, but more importantly, because we like to make sure that our language doesn't put people off considering faith, considering Jesus. And mostly the folk involved in this piece of market research were unchurched millennials. So probably quite similar in age to a lot of you here tonight. This didn't go down so well this morning when I was speaking to people who are much more senior. But anyway, I'm still here, so we're all good. Um, And what came back was absolutely fascinating. You see, they took the first two statements, the guys in this market research report, and they said, whoa, that's amazing. You mean there are churches who actually do that? Where, like, where are these churches? And like, how can I join them? That's amazing. We're, we're well up for that. But, and it's quite a big but, following Jesus was a big sticking point because Jesus, really sadly, this came out of the report, Jesus had become synonymous with all of this stuff over here around judgment and bigotry and outdated, institutionalized church and news headlines about church leaders with big moral failures and quite frankly, Jesus had been lumped in with all of this stuff that they didn't want anything to do with. Neither do I, really, if I'm honest. Now, don't hear me wrong. I count being part of this church, family, this church, as one of the greatest privileges of my life. And I think there are amazing people in this church who do incredible, wonderful things as we go and as we love Edinburgh and as we are family together. There are some pretty beautiful expressions of Jesus coming out of this church. We, we run a food bank. We have a job club. We have a debt center. We have a cat ministry. We have counseling. We have numerous communities all over the city reaching out, loving Edinburgh, serving the poor, welcoming the stranger, helping the refugee who is new to the city. There's so much stuff going on in this church. I don't even have the time to begin to tell you about it. But the problem is this, if we do all of that and we don't talk about Jesus, then we miss the point. The very reason, I think, that we're trying to change the narrative on church, that it is not this, but it is this over here, 
It's because we believe that's what Jesus is actually about. It's because of him. And it's in him. And if folk only get the first two of those pieces, loving Edinburgh, being family, and they don't get following Jesus, and we don't show them that, then something's not quite right. So, I would love to humbly invite you to join me this term on a wild adventure to reconsider Jesus. Reconsider Jesus. Who is he? Who do you think he is? And I think that might be for two reasons. One, maybe you have never really considered Jesus for yourself, like actually for yourself. Maybe you've never sat down with all the available evidence and thought about it yourself. Maybe you've let other people dictate to you who you think Jesus is. Maybe that was your parents or your old church or maybe it's just society at large that tells you faith is irrelevant and outdated. Well, maybe it's time that you got to sit down and reconsider Jesus for yourself. And in a city where we're all looking for anchor points, aren't we? We're all looking for things that are going to make sense of the world. It makes a lot of rational, logical sense to consider Jesus. Because historically, you can't argue with the fact that he's had a huge impact on society. That was number one. Number two, maybe you have considered Jesus already and he's your friend. You know him and you're a part of his family. But significantly, I think the challenge, if you find yourself in that camp, and I am right there with you, (laughs) is that in the face of increasing um, hostility to faith, right? You with me? And like more questions, increasing ridicule in the workplace. It's more and more important that we have confidence in the person of Jesus, that we know who he is. And we know more and more what it means to follow him. Confidence in him. So that might be why you want to reconsider Jesus. And the last two weeks, um, it was amazing, wasn't it? We have had this Converse series and Amy or Ewing came and spoke to us. Um, Do listen back on the podcast if you didn't hear. Um, And then we uh, were able to ask some questions via text. And so many of you text in your questions. And it was great that we all felt so able to be honest about our questions. But there comes a point now where we have to dig in and actually work them through. Reconsider Jesus. So... We have 16 weeks to reconsider Jesus, taking us up nearly to Christmas. I hope you're all ready for this. It's going to be, I am actually super excited about this. Um, We have got 16 weeks in a chapter, uh, 16 chapters of a book called Mark. So if you have got a Bible with you, then if you want to get it out and open it, now would be a good time to do that. And if you don't, then don't worry, because it's going to be on the screen just behind me. So the book of Mark is towards the end of the Bible. So if you go to the back and then turn back a little bit, you'll find Mark. If you get confused, just look in the um, contents at the beginning. Mark is the title of a book written by a guy called... That was the participation thing again. (laughs) Written by... Mark, okay, so that's the hard work out the way. Well done, everybody. (laughs) And Mark calls it a gospel, which basically means good news. So I'm sure you all will have seen the very sad passing of Aretha Franklin. Um, But she started out actually singing gospel music. 
It's music that tells good news. That's what a gospel is. And he puts a fairly clear introduction to the beginning of his book, Mark. We're reading from chapter one, the very beginning, verse one, the very first verse. Let's read it together. It'll come up on the screen. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He's kind of straight up, Mark. He gives it to you, absolutely bulldozer between the eyes. This is the good news about Jesus, like get with the project. He is like the, the, the bloke down the pub who will tell you the God honest truth over a pint and a pack of pork scratchings. Not that I have ever eaten those, of course. But uh, he's straight up, and you'll see this the next 16 weeks. He tells you how it is, straight up. And uh, Mark, this is your kind of ancient history lesson of Mark. Um, I'm laying out a bit of a foundation for the next 16 weeks. You'll probably know this already, but he's not actually one of the 12 disciples. Okay? Um, He is most probably a guy called John Mark, who was around Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. So he's very close to the primary source of all the stories that he writes down here. And the evidence is that Mark had a job as the interpreter for Peter. So Peter went around preaching all these stories and building up the early church. He was one of the first leaders of the church after Jesus died. And Peter went around and he taught all these things and Mark interpreted them. And then Mark wrote them all down. It's the earliest account of Jesus' life, and uh, historians place it as written between AD 40 and AD 65. And I'm telling you all of this not to bore you, but because I want you to know that you can have confidence in this gospel account. It has stood up to rigorous academic scrutiny. um, we can make whatever we want of its actual contents. We can form opinions about that. But in terms of its reliability as a manuscript, it's fairly watertight. So Amy or Ewing spoke about this actually, but there are 24,000 copies, fragments and pieces of the New Testament. And there are only seven copies of some of Plato's original manuscripts, but we accept Plato as that is what Plato wrote. How much more confidence can we have in this gospel when we come to it that it is as Mark wrote it? The question is, do we believe Mark? Do we believe the claims that he makes? That's what we've got to work out. That's what you've got to consider the next 16 weeks. So Mark's story about Jesus begins with a story about a man called John. So just when you thought you were kind of, okay, the good news about Jesus, yeah, I'm there. It's like, okay, pivot. It's about John. So he launches straight into this story about John and his gospel. It keeps doing this. It's like um, we went on holiday this summer to Cornwall and my little boy uh, had a lot of fun learning how to bodyboard. He might have looked at times like he was maybe drowning, but he was not. I was present at all times. Um, but we did see the Coast Guard patrol boat launch out a few times. I was like, no, no, he's fine. I've, I've got this. Um, but Mark's gospel is like that. A Coast Guard rescue boat launched out in haste because rescue is imminent and imperative. So let's read together from verse 4. The story about John, 
who's John. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Yum, yum. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So in an effort to uh, explain to you a little bit what's going on here, I want to tell you a bit about my life. So my little boy Charlie, he just started school this week and he has done great. I am super proud of him and we've had a pretty great summer together because the weather has been fantastic. Anyone else enjoyed the sunshine? Yeah? Okay, you could be more, you know, positive about this. The best summer we've ever had in Scotland. Um, But I do have a confession and I do spot a few parents here amongst the uh, millennials this evening. So this is for all you guys. I am not a no-screen parent, okay? So this is basically if you let your children watch television or not. Uh, It's proving a little controversial these days. Who would have thought? But uh, if you are a no-screen parent, then God continue to bless your amazing parenting. But for me, CBeebies and, uh, you know, Disney, Pixar, those things, they're helpful at times. And uh, at one point in the summer, I found myself watching this film, Nomeo and Juliet. Oh, yes. If you have never watched this film, then please don't, because (laughs) it is truly awful. So, Nomeo and uh, Juliet are neighboring gardening gnomes in a horticultural war, and Mercutio and Tybalt race lawnmowers. So, I mean, it is actually awful. The only good thing about this film was the prologue, the beginning, because it was basically word for word what Shakespeare wrote, and Shakespeare is a hero of mine. And uh, Shakespeare begins Romeo and Juliet like this. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. If you know it, feel free to join in with me, because this isn't just for my own enjoyment, okay? All you Shakespeare fans out there. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. Shakespeare was a genius. But if you were listening really hard there, you would have heard that Shakespeare actually told you everything that was going to happen in the play. He completely ruined the entire thing for you. Did anyone else hear that? (laughs) Romeo and Juliet, they're going to die. And then because they die, their parents are going to make up. So if you want to go home now, feel free. Uh, It's kind of like he tells you the end before the beginning has even really started. And it is exactly the same with Mark here. This is exactly what Mark is doing. He's laying out a prologue for his entire gospel because he wants us to see 
who Jesus really is and what he's really about. The end almost before the beginning. And so John arrives. He's an interesting guy. He's maybe not quite what they were expecting. I find it horrendously difficult to order meals in a restaurant. I absolutely drive my husband crazy. I sit there and then the waiter comes over and I'm like, I still don't know. And could you tell me about the specials again? And then I finally order and then my meal comes and I'm like, oh, that is not what I was expecting. And then I don't know how many of you also get plate envy. That's where the other person has ordered the meal that you really should have. It's uh, first world problems. But it's the same here. John is not John is not what they are expecting. A smelly, hairy man shouting at them from a river. Well, I don't think so. We were looking for a Messiah, thank you very much. We were looking for a saviour, for a rescuer. That's what the word Messiah means. Someone who was going to kind of liberate us from the Romans because we're being oppressed here and this is not fun. It's not good for us. It's not good for our kids. God, what are you doing? Come and sort us out. And instead they get John preaching a baptism of repentance, verse 4, for the forgiveness of sins. The word repent means change your ways, change your thinking. John arrives and he's saying, sort it out. Get yourselves right with God. Come on, guys. Reconsider him. Reconsider yourselves. Turn your lives around. Go in the right direction because God's savior is coming, but he's not who you think he is. The one who's going to make everything different. The one who's going to make everything right. Again, who's going to restore everything. Reconsider yourselves. Reconsider God. And John's listeners would have all known the story. We think that John would have been telling people as he called them to repent. It was the most famous one in their culture. It was um, a story called Exodus. Like for us, if I say to you, Posh and Becks, you will know immediately what I'm talking about, don't you? It's a particular brand of celebrity that makes its way into every form of magazine. You will know who I'm talking about and what I'm talking Well, it was the same for them with Exodus. They would have grown up with this story being told on their grandmother's knee. And it's the story of how God rescued their ancestors. It's the story of Moses. And he led the people out of slavery from a place called Egypt. And through the Red Sea, this is an artist's depiction of that event. And God split the sea so we could walk right through it. We were singing about it earlier. And that's their history. And John would have been talking about this. Just like then, you're to leave behind Egypt and to your walk through into the freedom and the new thing that God is giving to you that you don't quite know what it looks like yet, but it's going to be good. And it's going to be of God. So reconsider yourselves. Go in the right direction. And as a sign that they were serious about this, John said, I'll dip you in the river as well. But there's this really interesting verse that Mark puts into verse 8. Come with me there. John says, I've plunged you into water. He's going to plunge you in the Holy Spirit. Now, aside from the word plunge, making me giggle like an immature schoolgirl, that's for all you Miranda fans out there, um, what is actually going on here? What's this about? So John is referencing this promise from the literature that they all would have known. 
his listeners at the time. He's saying, you know that when God makes this exodus thing, this exodus thing, this, um, the sea, the, the bringing into fruit, when God does that again for you, you know he's promised he's going to come and be with you in a new way. That he's going to come and live on the inside, God on the inside, God in your heart, God with you. And guys, that is how God made us to be, isn't it? We read that, that's like the whole story of the Bible. God made us to live in relationship with him, holy and sacred and mysterious and beyond any words that I could use to describe to you, but God with us, in us, his life, his goodness. And and Mark, in putting this at the beginning of his good news narrative, is making a pretty bold claim. This Jesus, he's coming to make that possible. He's coming to do all of that. He's coming to restore your relationship with God, God on the inside. But it's almost, like he's saying, it's so much bigger than that too. It's about the restoration of everything you've ever known. It's about God redeeming and restoring everything. It's about creation healed. Back up for a minute. There is, um, there's this form of Japanese pottery that I heard about recently, and I'm sure many of you will know about it. It's called kintsugi. You will say that? Kintsugi. Yeah. You guys are doing well with participation this evening. Uh, so it translates as golden repair. And it's basically where the potter uses like gold lacquer, you can see it on this pot here, to fix where a pot has been broken, where it has shattered. And so old pots don't get thrown out, they get mended, they get restored, they get healed, they get fixed, and their seemingly ugly faults become their golden history. It's a beautiful concept, isn't it? And the philosophy behind it is that these things are more beautiful for having been broken and mended. And guys, I, I just have, right, I just have this sneaking suspicion, it's just a small one, that God was in on Kintsugi. I just think he's kind of, his hands are all over that, if you ask me, <laughs> Kintsugi. Redeemed, restored, reconsidered. And that's what Mark is trying to tell us Jesus is going to be all about in the next 16 chapters. Come with me back to the very beginning and I want to kind of help us dig a little bit into this. I know we're, um, I'm making you work a little bit harder this evening, but it's, it's so exciting and so important for the next 16 weeks. So verse 2, Mark says, and he's quoting from these ancient words um, that everybody around him would have, would have known about. It's from a book called Isaiah. It was part of their kind of heritage and, and the readings that they would have had in community. It says this, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Okay, so that's John. We all, we've read that story. That's John. He's going ahead of Jesus. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. What picture does that create? It's Exodus all over again, isn't it? It's director Mark is setting up this beautiful sequel. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
And just like you all vaguely knew Shakespeare's prologue when I said it earlier, you all had a faint memory of that in your heads, maybe blocked out from some English language lessons, but all the same, it was there. Everybody around, around Mark would have known the next bit of this, and it goes like this. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Guys, Mark is wanting us to see what God is doing in Jesus. And it's this, he's making everything right again. That's what that passage is kind of picturing for us. Imagine a mountain going level with a valley. Everything is smooth. Everything is walkable, rugged places, barren places become places of nourishment and not of famine or hardship. Rough places become safe places, everything is made right. And that, that my friends, is what we call the kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's kintsugi on like a universal scale. Is God making everything right? That, says Mark, that is what Jesus is here doing. So as you reconsider Jesus this term, as you walk that through over the next 16 weeks, can I suggest to you that maybe Jesus wants to fry your mind (laughs) because he is much bigger, certainly, than I have ever thought him. He is so much bigger than we think him to be. And if you heard that what Jesus is about is that he died on a cross to forgive you from your sins so that you could go to heaven when you die, then that is wrong. By which I mean, of course it is. And that in itself is an amazing, incredible truth. But it's also so much bigger than that. Because in Christ, in Jesus, Mark is saying, God is restoring everything. He's bringing about and ushering in God's kingdom. He's making everything right Again, and it's not just about us, but it's about each other, and it's about community, it's about family, it's about cities, it's about, it's about people, it's about everything. Creation healed. In Jesus, God is bringing brokenness to an end. And that's the kingdom. And that's what we're going to see the next 16 weeks. Jesus goes out and, and he eats with the people that nobody would eat with them, that is the kingdom. And Jesus goes out and he he welcomes people that nobody else would welcome, so much so that they climb up trees so they could even get a glimpse of him and they... He says to them, come down because I, I want to come and talk to you. And that is the kingdom. And then he goes out and he does these amazing miracles and, and crazy stuff that we can't get our heads around happen. And that is the kingdom. And then he dies on a cross. And that is the kingdom. And then he rises from the dead again. And God does that. And that is the kingdom coming in Jesus. And it's all there if we have the ears to hear it in Mark's brilliant prologue. So I got a bit excited there, but it's because it's exciting, right? Um, So what does this new reality mean for us? What does God's kingdom mean? And how do we, what do we do now? Like, what do I do with all of that, Hannah? 
I want to give you just two suggestions as I try and land this plane. The first is this, that we get to respond. And, and you get to respond. Jesus invites us in. The very first words that he speaks in this gospel, in verse 15, are words of invitation. Let me read them to you. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Change your thinking. Change your ways. And believe the good news. God's making everything new again. So don't wait for the perfect moment to respond to Jesus because I would just suggest to you that the present is the perfect time. What would it look like for you to respond to his invitation? What would it look like for you to speculate on God wanting to mend things in your life? And how might you begin just to talk to him about that? You don't even have to call it prayer. God, this is the place of unevenness in my life. And I would love some help with that. I want to speculate on your kingdom being what I think Mark says it is. You don't need the right words. God loves to listen to you. Respond. And then secondly, receive. Um, we, gosh, we don't have um, the time right now to unpack all of this, but this is one of my favorite pieces of the whole of Mark's gospel. Mark's first story of Jesus is his baptism, verses um, 9 to 13. And uh, one of the things I love most about this is before Jesus was anything else, before he went out and did any of that stuff, the miracles, the teaching, the eating, the drinking, he did a lot of eating and drinking, um, is that Jesus was a son. Before he was anything else, he was just loved. He was a son. Jesus is, uh, he goes to John, who's in the river, eating locusts and wild honey, and, and he asks John to baptize him. And John does that, and then it's not some kind of weird drug-induced vision. It's the reality of God. He comes up out of the water, and he hears a voice from heaven saying this, You are my son, verse 11. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And so it is. So it is with us. So it is with you, and so it is with me. Before we are anything else, guys, before you are a disciple of Jesus, before you're a learner, before you go, before you go out there and do any of this stuff and you change the narrative on church and you love Edinburgh and your family, you get to be a son. Before you do anything, God takes a risk on you and he loves you. He loves you. And I just wonder if you know that this evening, that he just loves you. That he's been out there waiting for you to turn to him so that he could show you his love. His love in Jesus. And uh, you're a son. And uh, if the ladies uh, find that difficult, the guys have to get their head around being the bride of Christ. So I think it's all right. We're up to this challenge, women. Okay. It's going to be all right. We are 
sons. And I, I remember really, really grappling with this as a student. I um, moved here for university and I was part of this church as a student. And I have to confess it was 12 years ago now, which will give you some indication of my age. Just letting you all do the math there. Um, and uh, I remember really grappling with this. How do I know that God, re- like, how do you really know that God loves you? And I, um, we did a, this thing where you had an adoptive student family at the time. And I went to see this family called the Backlers, some of my favorite people in Edinburgh. And they just had a little girl, Annie. And Annie was four weeks old. And the dad, Eddie, was stood in the living room holding this baby up on his shoulder. And I said to him, Eddie, how do you know that God loves you? How can I really know that? And I remember clear as day what he said. He looked at me and he held this little girl. And he said, Hannah, I, I don't even really know Annie yet, but I just love her. How much more must God love you? And it was like a game changer for me. It wasn't like his words totally made sense of everything, I'll be honest. But it was like in that moment, God showed me like this tiny glimpse of his heart. And that's all we need sometimes, isn't it? Just a tiny glimpse. How much more must God love you? And so I want to remind you as you come to reconsider Jesus again, this term, maybe for the first time, maybe for, you know, you've been doing this a while. You are a son. If you have talked to Jesus and you have asked him to come into your life, then you get to be a son. And you are a son in a kingdom that has come in Jesus in the most amazing way. In the next 16 weeks, we're going to explore that together. How did the kingdom come in Jesus? But you're also a son in a kingdom that is still coming. And it begins with his love. It begins with hearing those words of the Father addressed not just to Jesus, but also to you. You are my beloved. I am delighted with you. I love you. So, I've tried my best to describe to you guys what I think Mark says the kingdom of God is about. And uh, words are only going to scratch the surface of this. So I'd love to pray for us, if that's okay, that God would come and um, teach us and show us these things this term. As we dig into Mark, I hope you are excited with me um, for this term. And let's reconsider Jesus together again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this good news gospel. Thank you for Mark. Thank you for how he sets up this most incredible prologue. (laughs) He tells us so much of what Jesus is about in just eight verses. And God, we say that we would love just to reconsider Jesus again this term. And we want to ask for your help as we do that. I want to ask, Father God, that right now you would move out and touch every heart that is saying, yes, 
yes, I want to reconsider Jesus, that you would meet with them right where they are, that they would know they don't need to have all the answers or have everything worked out or be in the right place to even talk to you, that you come to us just as we are because of him. And God, we thank you that you are in the business of making everything right again. That you do kintsugi in the most amazing ways. And um, just as we pray, maybe if that particularly hit home for you, and you know there are things in your life that you would love God to come and golden lacquer, to fix, to mend, to make more beautiful, maybe even places of shame that you've been afraid to offer up to him, the potter, that you thought you had to hide. And maybe just in the quiet, this could be a space to do that. doesn't have to be, but if, if you would like to just say, God, I want to speculate on you actually doing that. That's what a part of your kingdom is, that you come and mend stuff. Mm. Just a little bit of quiet for you to say that to God yourself. And Father, lastly, I want to pray for us as a church and for those of us that call this home, that you would help us be a church who really do love Edinburgh, who are family and who follow Jesus, that you'd help us keep the main things the main things. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus.